Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we're going to take a little diversion from our coverage of the situation with Hamas and Israel and the militias and all of that mess in the Middle East that's broken out. We're going to take a turn to Al-Qaeda. The reason we're going to pivot to Al-Qaeda is that our guest today, her name is Sarah Hamouche. She is a senior PhD candidate at American University and founder and CEO of H9 Defense. Sarah recently wrote a fantastic article at War on the Rocks. It's titled, Al-Qaeda, A Defeated Threat? Think Again. You know, I don't think uh, listeners are going to be shocked that this is uh, the kind of uh, analysis that uh, gets uh, Caleb and I, um, re- you know, gets our ears up. Uh, it's a, it, it tracks with what we've been reporting about Al-Qaeda and, you know, all of the D words that have been attributed to it, uh, decimated, degraded, defeated, done, go on and on. I forget all the D words. There's so many of them. Um, but, uh, you know, Sarah's here today, of course, to discuss that article in depth and discuss Al Qaeda's remaining threat more generally, as well as a little bit more about her background and research interests. Sarah, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thank you so much, Bill and Caleb, for having me. I really appreciate it. And we're going to dive into Al Qaeda's threat and its remaining, you know, it's remaining resilience and adaptability and ongoing threats to the United States and um, its allies. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, so before we jump into that, Sarah, you know, you're a PhD candidate at American University. You have your own security consulting firm and congratulations. Introduce yourself to to the audience more properly. Um, tell us about your background, your research interests, your dissertation topic. Um, what you mainly study, and anything else that you think would be relevant for for us to get to know you better. Sure do. Sure, will do. Um, So I grew up originally in the Middle East. I grew up in Lebanon um, for the first, you know, 15, 16 years of my life. And I've witnessed a lot of the things that right now I work against from terrorism to corruption to wars to conflicts. And that, you know, left me with, you know, wanting to help eradicate or, you know, help not have the problem of, you know, terrorism or other people or, you know, children who are going to be facing similar things that I faced as a, as a child. So, you know, I started my journey in the U.S. and I ended up, you know, I got my first master's at Georgia Tech, my second one at Daniel Morgan Graduate School, which is now Texas A&M's Bush School. Both, you know, all my graduate degrees have been in uh, international relations, science and technology, and also delving into intelligence analysis. And I, I ended up, you know, doing um, research for multiple think tanks in D.C. Um, and then right now I consult for the U.S. government and the private sector on counterterrorism and conflict and uh, geopolitical, war, you know, warfares. And I'm, conti- you know, continuously right now, yes, I'm getting my uh, Ph.D. at American University. My dissertation topic looks at uh, resolve when it comes to militant groups. We've, you know, there's been a lot of conversations on resilience and resolve and and all of these at factors when it comes to state actors and, you know, and their ability to like sustain and wars and turning the tides and all of these things. 
So I'm looking at now to look into resolve when it comes to militant groups and how it is this factor of resolve that often turn the tides and often leads militant groups to either conduct international or domestic attacks or even, you know, sustain and continue to adapt and and remain resilient and, you know, bounce back after many years of counterterrorism pressure in order to, for us to understand the capabilities aspect of militant groups even more. Because right now we mainly look at either intentions, ideology, or even material resources, which there's been, you know, um, evidence and research on both that's, you know, contested, not linear. So my dissertation tries to assess, you know, militant groups resolve and how that influences um, militant groups choice of conducting international or domestic attacks, you know, as now more so militant groups and non-state actors are becoming more relevant in, in the global sphere and especially, you know, with proxy wars and all of that. So we're able to continuously be prepared for emerging threats. That's fascinating. You know, that's one of the things, the resolve issue is something that certainly I felt has always been in our enemy's advantage. Um, you know, the Taliban, or it's a saying that's attributed to the Taliban. I've heard it elsewhere. You know, the Taliban says we have all the clocks and they have all the time. Um, you know, I always say that we operate on in terms of election cycles, two and four years where these groups operate in terms of um, of, uh, of decades and, and generations. And I think that is one of the key, that's how they're thinking. They understand that they're under the underdog and they weather these blows. So that would be very interested in seeing how your research, um, you know, what you, what you, uh, come up with in your, in your research on that with your dissertation. So congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been an exciting journey to, you know, be able to come up with this variable and see how it's going to unfold and, you know, what are the, you know, the statistical analyses on it and its influence on militant group strategies and tactics. And I think when you pair, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but when you pair up resolve with um, with their ideology, which leads them to believe that they have, you know, a, a you know, they have a religious motivation to do that, that they ultimately they're destined, you know, you pair those two factors up. They know that they're weaker in us and material and in fundraising and things of that nature. But I do believe those are two very big advantages. Their their resolve and their religious motivations to continue these wars. I think those two really fuse together to give them a strong foundation to continue the fight. No, and I definitely agree on that aspect. And I do think, you know, I'm leaving ideology out of my research for like I'm, you know, using it as a control variable just because I because there's been a lot of contested, again, research and evidence on the role of ideology in their motivations. I think it's it's used as a recruitment tool, as propaganda, as as a factor that unites members together, not as a, not as as the specific literal interpretation of the ideology itself or the religion itself. But I do think it plays a role. And, you know, seeing how my description is gonna, going to unfold, I, I will be pairing them together at some point to just see if ideology sways, resolve, or even impact their tactics and strategies even more than just resolve by itself. But just like you said, you know, um, we rely a lot on material resources and in our fight, even when we conduct counterterrorism operations, we look at things from a financial lens. While, you know, these groups don't really, you know, think they need the money, they also operate, you know, efficiently and they've had successful operations without the need of so much money or so many, so much resources. So you're, you know, you're right on that aspect that, you know, they just 
they're, you know, adaptable and they continue to be committed and motivated. And, you know, even 20 years later and right now, after 20 years, you know, of, you know, the global war on terror and being in Afghanistan, you know, they're still there and they're, you know, being, you know, reinvigorated. They reiterate their, their commitment many times over the past, you know, two years after we withdrew from Afghanistan. So they definitely continue to be a threat at even then when they don't have the advantages that we have, you know, as all the resources and everything we come with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's turn to your article, your recent article, The War on the Rock. Um, so you, you begin your article correctly noting that President Biden's uh, triumphant statement on al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan it was about, what, a month, a month and a half ago where he denied that al-Qaeda is even in Afghanistan and intimated that the Taliban helped us eliminate them. Um, well, that statement, of course, is false. Um, there, I believe there's a lot of evidence to, to the contrary of this. This is something we've, you know, here at the Long War Journal have been sounding the alarm on since the fall of Afghanistan in 2021. So let's talk more about uh, how do you see al-Qaeda's current presence in Afghanistan? Um, there's been reporting from the United Nations on training camps. Um, there's reporting on previously in, um, imprisoned commanders such as Abu Iqbal al-Masri. He's he's back into the fight. Um, the Haqqani network, uh, which is of course is a uh, an arm of the Taliban or a branch of the Taliban, issuing documents, uh, passports, and national ID cards for Al Qaeda. Um, the involvement of Central Asian jihadist groups. Talk, talk to us about what you see. Um, Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan is um, how strong are they in your estimation? And what evidence do you see that that refutes President Biden's statement that Al Qaeda is done in Afghanistan? Um, well, to be honest, Bill, you know, even after we withdrew from Afghanistan, many generals made statements, and you know, congressional hearings were held, and all of you know the generals reiterated like it's going to take one to two years for Al Qaeda for Al Qaeda to rebuild. It's you know we're going to see them resurging. We don't know you know, right now what their capabilities are, but, you know, they are going to continue to want to attack the United States. Right now, even right at, you know, the minute we withdrew from Afghanistan and Taliban took over, you can see the, you know, a lot of the commanders of Al-Qaeda and some members of Al-Qaeda, you know, strolled back in with cars and, and members into Afghanistan, where they've been off the map and off the grid for the past, you know, 14, 15 years. Between one of them, you know, Hamad Amin al-Haq Sam Khan, who is in the Black Guard unit of bin Laden, and he's he was really close and he's been off the grid for the past 14 years. But then he was, you know, coming back. And you can also see that, you know, um, the training camps are back, especially in areas once, you know, earmarked by bin Laden that they were crucial for al-Qaeda and its operations. Not only that, you know, even in 2021 in September, right after we withdrew and, you know, the, you know, the United Nations reported that there are 8,000 to 10,000 foreign fighters that remain in Afghanistan and, you know, within Al-Qaeda's ranks. And while, you know, President Biden mentions all the time, like, we are working with the Taliban. The Taliban is not, you know, it's, they're going to help us. But the Taliban has always been one of the strongest allies of Al-Qaeda. You know, even we can go back to the times where, you know, Bin Laden was still there you know, and reading all their publications and their books. And I, you know, understand the skepticism and believing everything they say and they write. But, you know, Bin Laden said that he was going to conduct, you know, an attack and he followed up with his words. So we might want to, again, look at what they say and, you know, while take it with a grain of salt, but we should really assess 
you know, the validity of these threats. And, you know, reading all these like documents and even the declassified ODNI documents of all the, you know, bin Laden documents, reading through them and, you know, going over all of their statements and publications, you know, even before conducting 9-11, bin Laden had to run the 9-11 attack by Mullah Omar at the time. And he was awaiting approval for Mullah Omar, which tells you how much the Taliban has, you know, the links and, you know, the ties between Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Not only that, bin Laden, you can see Al-Qaeda groups and Al-Qaeda, you know, affiliates, leaders always pledging allegiance to bin Laden. And the one only time that, you know, I've read or seen bin Laden had pledged allegiance was to Mullah Omar, which means the Taliban, which also tells you, you know, regardless when you give a pledge, even though the affiliates leaders of Al-Qaeda pledged allegiance to bin Laden, bin Laden's pledge to Taliban tells you it's, you know, right there that also the, all of the affiliates and all of that are still tied to Taliban. And, you know, and even as Taliban tries to get recognition, yes, they're telling Al-Qaeda, like, do not conduct any attacks from Afghanistan, which, you know, we've seen statements of Al-Qaeda saying that, like, we're not going to conduct attacks from Afghanistan. But that does not mean the training camps are not, you know, going to continue. That does not mean the routes, the uh, the operations, the planning of it is going to be from there. And it's just, you know, I do think sometimes it's a smoke, smoke screen just for Taliban to get the recognition it wants. But Al-Qaeda's threat remains from there. And right now, the, the you know, the training camps, the foreign fighters, the the Taliban, you know, doing and conducting, uh, you know, the way on its citizens and all of that going back to Sharia law, that shows you that these times are reminiscent of the past of Taliban pre-9-11, which again, the suicide bomb, like bombing camps, the training, all of that is back. Not only that, but the Al-Qaeda we know today is not the same Al-Qaeda that we've known before 9-11. The Al-Qaeda today has learned, it has adapted, it has changed its strategies, and you can track and, you know, look at the patterns and trends of their strategic um, differences in their strategic adaptations from before 9-11 up until today. And you can see how, you know, they're becoming more covert in their like planning. They are not announcing leaders anymore because, you know, the Bin Laden documents and even all the books emphasize how, you know, they were worried about drones and leadership decapitation and they want to preserve the core. And, you know, the recent Al-Qaeda statements say that there are even 9-11 veterans within Al-Qaeda's core right now and within Al-Qaeda's branches so you still have, you know, members who helped plan slash conduct slash facilitate 9-11 right now, training and educating generations of new jihadists. And, you know, the way the U.S. exited from Afghanistan, it created also a lot of a lot of probably militants and more extremists for generations to come that felt that the U.S. betrayed betrayed them and left them under the the siege of Taliban, which, again, brings anti-U.S. sentiment and Al-Qaeda feeds off of that rhetoric. So, I mean, even looking just in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda is back. And while it's not announcing it like it used to and it's not making it public and we're not seeing visible activities, that does not mean, you know, the absence of evidence does not mean the evidence is absent. They're just they're going to continue, but they're doing it on their own way, in their own terms and quietly because they love the element of surprise. And that's when we are mostly shocked by an attack. And as we focused, you know, and shift our strategies, you know, elsewhere, this is the time where most planning and most 
you know, uh, organizing and all of that starts to occur. So, you know, it's still there. And I, you know, and I do think President Biden is slowly starting to see, see that and, you know, rescind his statement of they were, you know, they're gone and they're not there. And I mean, and like, you know, I mentioned in my article, the latest uh, FBI arrest in Philadelphia tied to Al-Qaeda with weapons of mass destruction, which, you know, right now, even within like the media and the rhetoric, we can't even put the word nuclear next to terrorism because it's just such, you know, and not, you know, we don't want to believe that this actual threat exists because how can you deter a terrorist group that's willing to die for its cause from using such weapons? You, you had mentioned uh, the generals had said, you know, there's a resurgence of Al-Qaeda. This is one of the things I've always refuted. It. Um, we were able to document based on just on open source information alone that Al-Qaeda had a significant presence in Afghanistan during the um, as the U.S. was still in Afghanistan all the way up to the withdrawal date. I mean, I've seen top Al-Qaeda leaders and operatives and, and military commanders, other financiers were being killed or captured on a consistent basis. So that's always stuck in my craw, um, you know, and then the reports come out after and this was last summer from the United Nations analytical support and sanctions and monitoring team about training camps, and safe houses and even a media operations center. And the Biden administration came out and rejected this. It it it, it refuted the information that was put out by the United Nations uh, Security Council. I found this to be quite odd. Do you have any insight on as to why the administration would come out and and really just trash the work of the the sanctions and monitoring team, which has really been excellent over the years? I mean, they've gotten very very little wrong. Some some minor details often. And it's again sometimes it's the way the information comes to them. The capture. I remember of an Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula leader. They didn't get that right. But you know these are these are few and far between. Their trends and their their analysis have been really as good as it gets out there. No, I completely agree with you. And the UN's reporting has always been so great. And like you said, it always gets better. And they have, you know, I've read almost all of the reporting every time they issue new reports. Um, I do think the administration, you know, after 20 years of being in Afghanistan, the appetite, you know, the the heat that the administration has gotten over the tight, like the way we exited from Afghanistan and, you know, at first it was like, you know, we'll do it over a year and then it was six months and then it was three months and then it was a month. So it's just the U.S. does not have the appetite to go into Afghanistan again or to even acknowledge that the threat still exists. So there is no, you know, wonder why, you know, the Biden administration would refuse and like reject everything the unite, you know, the monitoring team has put together because they don't want to believe that the threat actually exists or that, you know, after 20 years in, of war in Afghanistan, it did not really accomplish much. Yes, we've killed many Al-Qaeda leaders and members and all of that, but the threat is still there. And, you know, and as we, you know, start going close, you know, closer to election cycles and even the populist, the American populist does not have the appetite to be like, OK, we're going to be, you know, sending more troops to Afghanistan. We're back in the Middle East. And as we focus right now and shift to China and Russia and Ukraine, you know, ironically, now we're back in the Middle East with um, Israel and Hamas, the, you know, any type of reporting that's going to say, oh, there is a threat, it's going to shift from our focused, from, you know, the administration's focus off of Russia and China and Ukraine. And then even with 
the you know Congress's money or bills and all of that. And the administration does not want that. And especially as you know, we're coming close to elections and the populace is just there's no appetite for that. So, you know, regardless if the administration rejects it or not, the reality is they are in Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda is still there. Whether we go back, you know, we decide to try to, you know, build a strategy that addresses all threats, you know, mutually inclusive rather than shifting between like great power competition and, you know, counterterrorism. We need to continuously be vigilant about the terrorism threat. And I mean, Hamas's resurgence is by itself the evidence of, you know, they were quiet for so many years and we shifted our focus. Our focus for the past 20 years have always just been on Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. You know, Hamas was not in the picture. And suddenly the attack comes by and, you know, terrorism is back and and they were quiet. So if that doesn't tell us that we should continuously be vigilant and any, you know, if we just turn our eyes off the ball, I mean, the ball will come and, you know, hit really strong, just like Hamas did. And then we're surprised and then we have to shift our priorities. So I do think it's just the Biden administration does not want to believe that the threat is there, does not want to re have to like shift its priorities. It does not want to, you know, you know, the word Afghanistan after the withdrawal, it was just you, you know, you couldn't even publish anything on terrorism related, you know, in the media because the focus was just China, Russia, Ukraine. So it's just, you know, I think the West is tired. So it's, it's people, but even if we're, you know, tired and weary and we've been in conflicts for decades, us not being vigilant, it it will cost us another 20 years or 30 years, you know, soon in the future because of this just this mistake. Yeah, it's a, the, you know, Sarah, what you're describing there is they made a political decision to ignore intelligence of Al-Qaeda being yeah. in Afghanistan. And this is very, very dangerous for the future. Um, this is, I believe, how we got into the you know, the problems of 9-11, it was the Clinton administration thought it could be managed, um, that Al-Qaeda wasn't a serious threat, even though there were several significant attacks. And, um, you know, you also said something very, you know, which I agree with Washington has is in, unable to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, yes, Al-Qaeda can be a threat from Afghanistan. And hey, maybe, you know, we could we could have argued that we were going to leave Afghanistan and been honest about what we were leaving behind. And then said, well, we were going to manage this the best we can. You know, we've done all we can. But the, what what was done here, we were sold a bad bill of goods uh, that Al-Qaeda was no longer a threat from Afghanistan. The Taliban is our ally. This really can set us up something for something very dangerous. And Kate, so, Caleb, you had a question for Sarah? Uh, not on this, but I'd like to move away from your, your favorite topic of Afghanistan. Oh, thank you, Caleb, for saving <laughs> me. Thank you. I'll save the listeners the trouble. Um, but yeah, so, you know, one thing I think is interesting is that, um, you know, in defending your, your piece from some of the, the naysayers or what we like to call the denialists, um, on Twitter, or what is now X, um, you tweeted it being the article views AQ and its affiliates as a unified network, arguing that the activities of its affiliates reflect and often directly contribute to the overarching goals and strategies of the core group. This is exactly, I mean, this gets Al-Qaeda exactly right. And it's something that Bill and I, especially me, have, have been arguing online on Twitter for, for years. And just a lot of the the, the denialists or, or what uh, our colleague Tom Jocelyn calls, you know, 
disconnecting the dots. Um, you know, they, they kind of like to put this false divide between, you know, the so-called core or what Al-Qaeda calls this gen- general command and, you know, its affiliates or branches when that doesn't really exist. You know, what you tweeted is definitely, in our view, a more accurate representation of how, you know, AQ operates vis-a-vis its general command and branches. The branches do support the goals and strategy of the leadership, but, you know, they do have significant day-to-day autonomy. Um, you know, these are local groups operating in their local context, you know, Al-Qaeda core or core, the general command is not going to tell them how to, you know, Shabab, for instance, how to deal with a particular clan when Shabab will know how to do that better. Um, but the overarching goals of Shabab are in line with what the, you know, general command tells them, um, you know, and keep in mind that, you know, Al-Qaeda's overall goal and original purpose is to foment and sustain these Islamic insurgencies. This is exactly what the branches are for. You know, in the best place to really see this, which, you know, you note or, you know, at least imply in the article is Africa. You know, you you jump straight into their activities on the continent. Um, you talk about Shabab in Somalia. You talk about JNIM and, you know, the Sahel and even AQ trying to mobilize supporters in Sudan. Um but, you know, do you think you can discuss a little bit more about how you see the African branches and sort of what they contribute to, you know, Al-Qaeda as a whole? Um, sure. And I do I do agree, you know, Al-Qaeda, its general command, just like, you know, its branches, they all, you know, they all follow a set of steps and strategies of Al-Qaeda and goals of Al-Qaeda core. You know, the main the main overarching goal is to, you know, um, is established an Islamic caliphate and, you know, reminiscent of the times during, you know, the Prophet Muhammad's times way back in the, you know, Islamic centuries and Islamic empires, which is, you know, extends all over the um, the North African countries, even a little bit of Spain um, and, you know, takes Afghanistan and all of that with it. But to, in order to get to that step and then expel, you know, the Jews from Jerusalem and regain all the holy lands and, you know, and, and all the um, the holy shrines there, in order for them to get to that step, they do. They have an offensive and a defensive strategy, which they alternate and switch between. One, you know, they conduct terrorist attacks against the U.S. and its allies and its and, and you know Israeli targets. And then at the same time, they want to overthrow Arab secular regimes. In order for them to overthrow Arab secular regimes, they need the affiliates to govern and provide ser- services to the people there that which they can you know win the hearts and minds of the population. So when the time is right and they can overthrow the the government, the secular regimes, it's the affiliates that are localized in all of these countries are the ones that are conducting these goals and conducting that that strategy. But at the end of the day, the overarching goal is establishing an Islamic uh, caliphate and all the affiliates work through that goal. I mean, even when bin Laden, you know, when the alliance process occurred between uh, Al-Qaeda Corps and all of its affiliates, you know, Bin Laden did the vetting process. He sent, you know, sent first um, Al Qaeda leaders and and members he trusted to those regions to assess what each affiliates needed, their strength, their weaknesses, what can they bring, and then to ensure that there's going to be synergy between the affiliates and there's going to be following the strategy of Al Qaeda core and all of its goals. So, especially right now in Africa. And as you know, and I mentioned earlier with um, Taliban needing recognition, which means like they're, you know, withholding attacks, at least from Afghanistan, but their operations and their planning continues there. You know, 
Africa with all of its coups and all of the um, the Western withdrawal of the military and you know, the French and all of that, we barely have, you know, any more presence there on counterterrorism forces. Um, it is going to be the next epicenter. And I mean, and I do briefly mention um, on Sudan specifically, because I do think, you know, Sudan will be the next Afghanistan. And the problem with that is Sudan's geostrategic location, its resources, its Islamic relevance, its ties to bin Laden that date back from the 1990s. And, you know, even bin Laden, before he like he was killed in 2006 in an audio tape, he had said Sudan will be the next battlefield. So and, and you know, and the resources Sudan has and how it links and connects the sub-Saharan Africa with North Africa and with Khartoum as the capital in the middle as a headquarter, it's going if it does become Afghanistan 2.0. And, you know, Al-Qaeda has already been making moves there and have been calling for jihad there. And, you know, the rapid support forces have ties to Al-Qaeda and they echo the same um, Islamic rhetoric. They echo the Sharia law. They echo all the violent tactics of Omar al-Bashir and then the former, you know, because they were former Janjaweed militia. It's going to be more dangerous than both how Afghanistan and Iraq combined were in that matter because Sudan sits on um, all, you know, all of our shipping and trade uh, maritime resources. Maritime attacks have been a huge rhetoric in, Af- in bin Laden's uh, propaganda right before, you know, he he had died. Um, they could literally, you know, our economic sources would be hampered because all the oil shipping and all of that would occur there. So while, yes, you have a Shabab in different regions, Jainam, you have um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghrib, and you have also like all the different like local groups of these affiliates. I mean, if you look at the maps right now, and we've seen also a cooperation between the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in West Africa, and all the coups, and I mean, they're already spreading there and expanding. And as more African countries, you know, start having more issues and geopolitical instabilities, and there are no military um, uh, troops there and nothing to withstand the, you know, and limit or, you know, at least push back on Al-Qaeda's expansion and its activities there, it's going to be a mess when we see all the countries. And if you look at the map, I mean, it's like a dominant effect of all Al-Qaeda's expansion and its activities and its propaganda and all of its movement. And it is, you know, Africa, because it has the resources and it's known for, you know, even as we move right now to like green energy and you see like even, you know, the Russia is there, China is there. Um, we've seen a little bit of Iran also there and, you know, Wagner and um, Hezbollah. It the whole continent is is, you know, it's a bomb ticking of a jihadist, complete jihadist takeover. If, you know, there's not not again an intervention or anything there. The denialists, you know, they like to downplay you know, the actual links or connections between the branches and the, and the general command. Um, again, this is what Tom Jocelyn calls disconnect the dots. Um, it's just, it, it's making these assumptions or conscious, you know, decisions to remove the evidence or to remove, you know, any links between the affiliates and core. What would you say to those who dismiss these actual linkages and, you know, ideological affinity between Al-Qaeda's general leadership and the African branches? I mean, it's not even just the ideological affinity between the groups, because you can also, you know, they can argue that side. They're like, you know, the Islamic State has also similar ideological affinity with with Al-Qaeda, but you don't see 
the the you know the alliance between Al Qaeda, you know, Al Qaeda or the Islamic State, the way you see it with Al Qaeda and its affiliates and its branches. And you know, even when the first alliance um started, you know, after 9-11, when the group went into decentralization, it was what, you know, the way bin Laden had strategized and had built the group is decentralization was the way to you know, avoid counterterrorism pressure. And because, you know, when you know the core is just in Afghanistan, you're just going to target there. But when you have all the affiliates all over the place, it is going to be harder for, you know, the U.S. or the West to execute counterterrorism um, operations or pressure because they're so dispersed. Not only that fact, the way uh, bin Laden had uh, executed these alliances and had built the strategies and built the ties between the affiliates and the core you don't see that within the Islamic State, which is why, um, which is why Al Qaeda still remains, you know, to me, a bigger threat than the Islamic State is. Because even you know, if you look at you know Al Qaeda core and its affiliates, you can see how Bin Laden not just only built you know the alliances and you know built the mergers. He you know studied business administration at King Abdul Aziz University, and I you know went through all the syllabus and all the classes he had taken around, you know, the time. And he was, you know, reading, you know, the books of, you know, our, the fathers of the organizational studies. And he built the ties between even the affiliates themselves and the core and between the affiliates, uh, you know, among themselves, horizontal and lateral ties. And you can see the way he established it, where AQAP would assist AQ, you know, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghrib, and then you can see Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula also help Al Shabaab because Bin Laden had had you know strict directions and guidance on you know continue communicating, especially to AQAP, where we saw you know Nasser Haishi at that point how close he was with uh, with the core, and even you know they want to deny the links. All the secession, you know, strategies of, you know, Al-Qaeda's core were followed by Al-Qaeda leaders of the affiliates. You know, it was, yes, sure, like in, in if we want to look like in following, Bin Laden had lined up Al-Qaeda's, like Al-Qaeda's leaders, um, affiliate leaders as following in secession plans for them to become leaders, you know, after each other. So that by itself tells you the tides are, are, you know, completely there, especially if you have, you know, Bin Laden or, you know, Zawahidi or Al-Qaeda Corps leaders, it, you know, they put next, you know, after they they die, it's going to be, you know, it was Al-Qaeda's, you know, AQAP's leader, and then it was AQIM's leader, and then it was different leaders of these different affiliates, which that you can't deny that the ties are there. Not only that, but again, we've seen with the rise of the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda affiliates and Al-Qaeda Corps, even though during the rise and the peak of the Islamic State, where the Islamic State was the, you know, the better partner, you didn't see an Al-Qaeda, you know, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates were struggling around that time because of the counterterrorism pressure and all of that. You didn't see any of the affiliates go and, you know, defect from Al-Qaeda and go to join the Islamic State, you know, even though they had more money and they still had the same ideology. So the ties are there. And even if we look overarching picture of all the Al-Qaeda, you know, branches, activities, and, you know, their strategies and even their shifts in strategies whenever Zawahidi comes up with a new guidance or a new strategy and, you know, directs the affiliates like, you know, do not target civilians, do not, or when Bin Laden, you know, during the Arab Spring, when Bin Laden clearly instructed the affiliates, do not engage against, 
you know, the 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 governments let them fight their own wars. We don't want to engage. And you can see the affiliates responding to that and acknowledging that and adapting to that. So if that doesn't tell you that they're the ties are there, you know, I'm not sure what more evidence do we need to, you know, that can tell us that like they are, you know, in line with Al Qaeda strategy. They do listen to, you know, at the time Bin Laden's, you know, Bin Laden's command or Zawahidi's command or any shift of strategy which the organization publicly, you know, and they're pub- you know publicly announced. The affiliates followed, and even right now with the announcement of the leader of, you know. It's still, you know, right now, it's presumably the de facto leader is Saif al-Adil, but you, we have not seen any of the affiliates even acknowledge the Wahidi's death. So you can see them acting in parallel and in concerted efforts. And even with the Israel-Hamas, um, you know, war right now in the conflict, you saw all the branches make statements and launch, you know, um, you know, all like uh, propaganda and all of that that falls in line with the general command. It wasn't just one, you know, it wasn't just the general command that went and celebrated Hamas's attack. It was a general command followed by AQAP, AQIM, Ashabab, Hirat al-Din even in Syria. You like you and that is a concerted effort that shows Al-Qaeda and its affiliates as a unified network acting in concert to all to Al-Qaeda's core and to the overarching um, tactics and all of them, even, you know, Saif al new book, or, you know, there's other books that got published. I mean, Al-Qaeda published a lot in the past two years, like books and and that, you know, details the the steps to their operations, whether it was 9-11 or different, different books. They, you know, they do say, going back to the autonomy that the affiliates have on the ground or all of that, from Bin Laden's writings to the Bin Laden documents to all the newest publications and books, they all echo that, like, the leadership will give overarching plans and it will give the autonomy for execution for its affiliates leaders. Because Bin Laden had said, you know, in, in, in letters between Bin Laden and his associates and reading the declassified documents, you can notice how Bin Laden does say, like, the people on the ground know best what to do on the ground because they have the, the not, you know, the, the situational understanding of what's happening there. They know what to do. But the goals are there. The plans are given by the central command, by the general command of Al-Qaeda. And it is up to the affiliates to execute in the way the affiliates see fit because they are the ones on the ground and they understand and know what is on the ground than, you know, the core or any different leader. So it's been, you know, they've been given autonomy to execute, but it's like, you know, it's, I, you know, I do look at it. It's like centralized command, but decentralized, you know, control or vice versa, if you want to see it. And that's how Al-Qaeda had managed to continue to, you know, even with its affiliates and its affiliates grow in money and members and and territory. And they've sustained it's because of those different strategies they've adapted, you know, in response to our counterterrorism measures. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head there, especially, you know, two of these points that you you brought up, I think, are... The things that I like to mention to people that sort of deny sort of these links. And, you know, the first thing is that, you know, regional heads of Al-Qaeda, of being, you know, the emirs and the Sahel, Somalia, wherever, they also sit on the Hatim Committee, the the main shura for Al-Qaeda. If that doesn't show you that they are unified in a cohesive network, I don't know what does. 
Um, secondly, you know, the line of secession. The UN noted a year or two ago now that the regional heads are also in the overall line of secession. You know, Abu Ubaidah and Shabab, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm forgetting his name, but the AQIM leader um, is also yes. within the top five. Um, Abdelmalek Druktal, when he was killed in Mali, the French yeah. noted that they assessed him to be the number three in line for Al Qaeda as a whole. You know, and then the last thing you touched on that I like to bring up is is the cohesive media strategy, which I think a lot of people downplay, is that it's very easy to tell how cohesive they are by their media. And you absolutely nailed that of the unified messaging they do, especially now with Gaza, but also the strategic silence they have on Saif al-Adil's appointment that shows you that they've communicated with everyone to not mention this publicly. It's very clearly that they, everyone knows that it's safe. Everyone knows they have a leader. People like to bring up in articles or whatever of, well, they don't have a leader. They're in disarray. Like, they have a leader. They just haven't publicly announced it. And they don't want to announce it because they don't want the U.S. to get, you know, another Hellfire missile to kill yeah. the leader. They are trying to preserve the core and their, their leaders as much as possible right now because they're trying to, re, you know, rebuild and re-strategize and continue to, you know, teach the generations that are going to be next. And they need those you know, 9-11 veterans and they need the core that were close to bin Laden so they can continue to echo his, you know, his messaging and all of that. Plus, like, you know, to go back to your point of the cohesive and, you know, media strategy and in line when Zawahiri, you know, during, I think, the, the, you know, the 2014-2016 period when he announced, you know, when Al-Qaeda, I think it was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen had by mistake killed civilians and, and, you know, and that was where one of the affiliates like deviated a little bit of what Zawahidi instructed. Zawahidi made the group, you know, have a public apology of, you know, that they, that was not intentional and that was not, you know, meant to be. So if, you know, and that also shows you that public apology that again, the affiliates are following, you know, following and falling in line of what the general command is telling them and wants them to do. Sarah, you'd mentioned the Al the Al Qaeda gives the guidance, the direction, and the affiliates or uh, the branches they carry them out. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I always look at it in terms of an imperfect analogy. But you know, the Department of Defense doesn't micromanage what CENTCOM does in its day to day operations or any other command. They give them the guidance. They give them the resources. They you know, CENTCOM understands what they need to do, and then they execute. Now, obviously, if it's a sensitive issue responding to an attack, they're going to go back up to the chain of command, and how do we respond to this? But it's day-to-day operations. That's that's just not going to be the case. And um, on the issue of um, leadership, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And like, we have to remember Nasser al-Wahashi. I mean, this was in the, what he before he was killed, 2015 or 16, I can't remember, it's so long ago. I mean, he was Al-Qaeda's third in command. He was their, their general manager. Al-Qaeda was decentralizing its leadership. And another reason, uh, final quick thought, um, is that Al-Qaeda hasn't mentioned uh, Zawahiri's death and announced his successor is because of Zawahiri, where Zawahiri was killed and how he was killed is very embarrassing to uh, both Al-Qaeda. Well, really embarrassing to the Taliban, not to Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda's covering for its, its ally. Al-Qaeda can't say that Zawahiri was killed in Kabul, while sheltering with Serge, uh, an associate of Sarajin Hakani in a safe house, one of the safe house they managed, 
So they're going to have to, um, you know, play that game. I don't think Al-Qaeda is, you know, it, it's a different, if this was 15 years ago, Al-Qaeda would have to announce its leadership. That was very important back then. I think things that you're, you're talking about this and, you know, how Al-Qaeda has evolved. It's not as important for Al-Qaeda today to be the, have that public image, to be the face of the, the so much has changed in the, in the jihadist community and Al-Qaeda has had a lot of success and, into in integrating itself with local groups and managing its strategy that the leader of Al Qaeda today doesn't mean the same thing. It's, I'm not saying it's not important, but announcing who it is and, and making that public isn't as important to them as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. A hundred percent. I completely agree. And just, you know, to go back to like Caleb's point, it's just, you know, they are trying to, you know, evade security measures and counterterrorism operations and they don't, between them and among them, they know who the leader is and they know, sure. you know, all of that. And they're, you know, continue, you know, continue to get directions and strategies. But for them to announce it, they don't that's not important for them anymore because for them, it's security, it's secrecy right now. And that's how they pre preserve the element of surprise. And they keep, you know, after 20 years of, you know, of uh, war, you know, the war on terror and continuous pressure on um, Al Qaeda and its affiliates, they don't want it back to shift to them right now. They want all eyes off of them so they they can, you know, operate freely and, you know, move freely and coordinate and do all of that. And then when the time is right, they they either, you know, might not announce, but they will strike. They will surprise us. They will, you know, which is why I, you know, emphasize that the, the lack of visible activities does not mean that the group is gone and it's, you know, that's not, is not operating just because they're not conducting as much attack or as many attacks as the Islamic State, or they're not making public appearances and, you know, announcing everything publicly. It doesn't mean that they stopped, you know, they stopped existing and all of that. They've taken, you know, we withdrew from Afghanistan in 2021. And it's been, you know, now like, what, two years? They are taking all of that time to rebuild, to reassess, to re-strategize. And they don't want any eyes on them right now or any, you know, back pressure or any of that because they're trying to reassess and rebuild so they can continue the plan that they, you know, put up. But, you know, even Bin Laden, before he had died, he mentions how the strategies would shift that, you know, even he he had instructed affiliates to not take media interviews, to not, you know, everything that he was doing pre 9-11, he had told the affiliates and even, you know, between the letters and all of the, you know, Bin Laden documents, they mentioned that, you know, we are not following the same strategies. We are going covert. We need to, you know, avoid uh, leadership decapitation and drone strikes. We cannot announce anymore. We cannot be in the public eye. All like they, because again, like I've mentioned before in a, in a lawfare article back in April, Al Qaeda conducts ge geopolitical assessments. I mean, if we look at bin Laden's diary during the Arab Spring, bin Laden followed it line by line. He was, you know, like, apt to everything that was happening in order to assess how are all these geopolitical changes going to impact Al-Qaeda's strategy. And based on that, Al-Qaeda would re-strategize and then reshift and adapt to those because for them being able to assess the situational understanding of all those regions was where would Al-Qaeda take advantages of that situation or exploit, you know, vulnerabilities or all of that. So the group you know, adapts and continues, but it doesn't mean, again, that it stopped operating. It's just, yeah, they're trying to survive so they can, you know, come back and surprise us when the time is right.
Yeah. And to your point about patients, you know, first World Trade Center attack, 1993, eight years in between. That certainly didn't mean Al-Qaeda wasn't relevant, wasn't working to conduct another attack or anything quite like that. So let's um, take a look. You in your art, in your article, you you focus towards the end on Saif al-Adel and his current leadership or, you know, again, it's not officially Mm -hmm. confirmed, but we all know that it's there. That he or that he's still the leader. Can you discuss how you see him as a as a leader and what he actually brings to the table for Al Qaeda? To be honest with you, I'm like I'm not completely convinced again that he is actually the one leading. Um, I could say that yes, potentially he. You know, the fact that he's in Iran and what you know, and I don't want to give Al Qaeda too much credit on that, but for like for Al Qaeda to make us believe that he is potentially the leader and him being in Iran. The U.S. can't really conduct, a, you know, a, 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 you know, a drone strike right now in Iran or all of that. And in that way, they're not they kind of, you know, not announced it, but people presumed it was Saif al-Adil. You know, regardless if he is leading or not, he is playing some role within Al Qaeda's within Al Qaeda and it's and and the affiliates. And, um, you know, he did. There are different things and, you know, we've had debates about his, you know, who he is really and the confusion that occurred before when we, you know, way back when he was thought to be, you know, a different commander or, you know, from a different country. But even Al-Qaeda's, you know, like books, you know, the one that was published by Abu Muhammad, by Abu Muhammad al-Masri back in Iran, where I guess, you know, he was around that time. The, the book mentions that, you know, the U.S. has confused Saif al-Adil with someone else and that Saif al-Adil actually is not the, the you know, person that we make him to be and the role that he had played with Al-Qaeda. But he, you know, he did, you know, come from Egypt and Egypt we know is like big for, you know, for Zawahiri and for Al-Qaeda and, you know, um, for, you know, Islamic Jihad. He does play a role in, you know, the military strategies and we can see that from the new book that he's published which is, you know, he calls it like the free readings and, and his own take on the 33 strategies of war, which, you know, inspired by Robert Greene's uh, own book, where his strategy does indicate a slight shift on, you know, whereas bin Laden back, you know, in 2006, you know, he said that they don't differentiate between civilian targets or the U.S. as a government or the West or Israeli because they're both the same. But you can see from that book how Saif al-Adil mentions that, like, you know, on our lands or our enemies' lands, you know, do not target civilians, do not, you know, stray away from that, which also tells you, so are they now only targeting government and military? And, you know, so is the targeting now shifted to just focusing on that? And if it is government, you know, and military and all of those, what are the potential targets of, of those type of, you know, targets? And then you can see the element of surprise is also still there, but also Saif al-Adil emphasize, you know, emphasizes you know, going, moving away from doing, you know, conventional things and things that the branches or the members are used to and continuously being creative and re- reflect and learn from the things that they, you know, have done or have not done or, you know, and the group is known to learn from its mistakes and adapt. I mean, the World Trade Center was first in 1993, then they conducted 9-11 after that. Um, so it's just, it's, he does, play, I mean, right now, a role in uh, directing the military strategy and some of the guidance of the group in a way like, you know, we are now trying to win more the, you know, the hearts and minds. So do not conduct, um, you know, attacks against civilians, which is also interesting, the timing of it, because 
you know, in the U.S., we saw on TikTok how there were, you know, people who empathized and sympathized with Bin Laden's letter, and which was, you know, mind blowing to just see. But that, again, falls into the point of like winning the hearts and minds and avoiding the civilian targeting strategy, which is an interesting shift on that. But again, also, Saif al-Adil seems to emphasize psychological warfare, where he says, you know, we cannot just conduct one attack because we need the psychological ramifications to be more. So he also like advises and guides for consecutive attacks right after each other to, um, you know, to bring out the psychological aspects of it. So he kind of like calls for, you know, like the same kind of like 9-11 operations where you saw multiple planes, you know, going into multiple different places at the same time. And there's been, you know, an echo of that. But again, it doesn't even within their newest 9-11 anniversary magazine, they say, you know, planes aren't the only thing that you can use. And, you know, and the consecutive attacks don't mean just in the United States. I mean, we've seen them echo, you know, new threats, again, renewed threats to European countries and, you know, NATO allies. So, you know, this is also the type of, you know, publishing propaganda or publishing books is also the way of how, you know, the affiliates may be communicating the guidance, the type of like, I mean, even if you look at the different, the different books, all the books have like advice from these type of leaders, like, you know, uh, things that you have to do, you know, books by what the Wahidi did, or like, you know, Anwar Laulaki, or like all the different things. And those propaganda isn't just for us to read and see, but it is an easier way to communicate and to avoid being caught and especially right now, you can see them, even all the core and the fields published statements about like, what is the best platform to communicate on or like, you know, like VPNs and all of these things. So, you know, and if that also, you know, doesn't show that the group is adapting to even technological advancement and is, you know, coordinating, even that they're not really coordinating, um, you know, I'm not sure what more evidence do we want. And, you know, even to go back, not just the strategy. And I do think just like I, you know, mentioned in that tweet that Caleb mentioned about that strategic, you know, strategy and adaptability are more important factors than material resources um, for these, for these groups, because we've seen them, you know, we've seen how 9-11 was clearly, you know, clearly demonstrated the strategic acumen. We've also seen a lot of research and a lot of, you know, even right now with, you know, Ukraine's resistance to Russia, Russia's more materially superior but again it's strategy it's adaptability it's all of these things and i you know after 20 years and you know on the war on terror i'm just hoping that we you know we're able to recognize that we cannot just look at four numbers because if any you know if we learn anything from those past 20 years about relying on tangible capabilities or looking for data or statistics or numbers it was you know time over time over time we've been proven it's not the numbers. It's not the quantities that matter. It's not any of these things. And we should be vigilant to more than the numbers. And like you said, you know, the debate about if Al Qaeda, you know, when the administration rejected the UN's report, there's, you know, um, there was an article that, you know, got published about the debate about Al Qaeda's presence or threat or all of that. And, you know, multiple government officials have made statements like, oh, but I don't see the data and I don't see the numbers. And it's just like, but. We've done this before. You know, pre-9-11, Al-Qaeda barely had between 50 and 75 members. The 9-11 operation in its entirety that killed 3,000 U.S., you know, Americans. And then all the wars that we've been, you know, dragged in afterwards. 
it didn't cost much. So it's, you know, it's just the, you know, the, the sounding the alarm that, you know, you and Caleb continue to do. It's just, I hope we can continue just to be vigilant. So we're not surprised again. Right. Just absolutely nailing it. Like I, it is so refreshing to hear someone, you know, who thinks is. this way. Um, it, I can't stress that enough. Um, but you know, one last thing, you know, super brief, uh, before we sort of wrap this up, but you know, part of your article, you talk about the, you know, the war in Gaza and you sort of make the case that it's acting as a, a galvanizing moment for AQ. Um, and, you know, to note, AQ has always placed itself within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, even though they've have limited to no presence there. Um, but, you know, various branches have used that conflict to justify acts of terror. But, you know, can you speak to more about what you mean by that and sort of what the evidence is to suggest that it is a galvanizing moment for AQ? Um, to be honest, yes, the Palestinian cause has always been what Al-Qaeda has used, even, you know, from when bin Laden had, like, put the strategy and the goals for for Al-Qaeda. And um, even, you know, even he had even an interview, uh, bin Laden had stated and attributed 9-11 to, um, you know, the U.S.'s um, support to Israel and all the, the Israeli tension that was happening before, like, around the times of 9-11. And, you know, and the overarching goal continues to be to expel the Jews from, you know, Palestine and regain and reclaim Palestine. How I see it galvanizing even more is the fact that now we're seeing, you know, more recruitment because of the the Israeli, uh, you know, Hamas war. We're seeing a lot of more jihadist rhetoric. We were seeing more anti-Israeli, anti-American sentiments rise from, you know, all over the world. And Al-Qaeda capitalizes on that, just like it capitalized on, you know, on a lot of the conflicts before. And that drives this recruitment that gives members and peoples and people and individuals all over the world a reason to join Al-Qaeda and to sympathize with Al-Qaeda's cause. And even not only just that, we've also seen, you know, how um, alliances occur against common adversaries and foes. And even though they're temporarily and, you know, they're transactional in a sense, We've seen in the past how Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State cooperated in West Africa. You know, we've seen, you know, even bin Laden around the time, he always wanted to reunite, um, you know, uh, uh, all the Islamist group. And that goes back, to, again, to the Prophet Muhammad's time, where he also wanted to, uh, you know, have all the Muslims, all the Muslims, you know, under one banner. But again, that gives also, you can see the rhetoric of all the different, you know, terrorist groups and Al-Qaeda and his branch of Islamic State, even um, Hezbollah in a matter, about how they're all calling for the same thing. You can see more support. You can see less attacking each other on their propaganda. You can see a type of unity that even though it's temporarily, if the enemy is common, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we can see that rhetoric, which also means that the, the conflict will galvanize, you know, maybe, uh, you know, terrorist groups joining hands in hands. And and that also means more resources. That means more attacks on different uh, fronts for the U.S. and it's, you know, and Israel. So it, you can see also, you know, more propaganda even getting published right now on on um, regarding, you know, with the hashtag with Al-Aqsa floods and how that hashtag is being used, not just by terrorist groups, but by individuals who are individuals, you know, just like you and I who are sympathizing with the Palestinians and the conflict in in Gaza. So 
it is galvanizing and it's also, you know, the eyes are there. So we're not seeing any pressure on Al-Qaeda or its affiliates. And, you know, you mentioned that they don't have a group there. There has been, you know, the lion's den in in Nabals that, you know, the group that rose and suddenly took, you know, everyone by surprise. You know, there are links of, to, of that group to Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden called, he had a training camp that was called the Masada in, in, uh, during the Soviet times. And it was called the lion's den where he put it strategically within the Soviets. So you can attack the enemy right in the head. And if you look at how the propaganda of this group is, is, uh, built and is organized, the ties, the rhetoric, it all echoes Bin Laden's statements, the rhetoric, the alliances, the type of, um, all of that. And then if you look at the time that group rose, the group will, you know, rose right after we withdrew from Afghanistan. And one of the Bin Laden letters between him and his associate says, you know, to expel the Jews from Palestine is to claim victory in Afghanistan. We withdrew the group rose in September 4th. And with the propaganda that is strong, that is surprising. So, you know, Al-Qaeda might have a group there. It's just has not announced it, at least, or made that link very clear. Right. I mean, I don't know about the, the lion's den, just to provide a, a you know contrarian take to that just you know our colleague joe trusman does a lot on on the west bank he, he a lot of what his reporting is it's more you know pij hamas but you know nebulous ties to you know whoever else could be um but for now it seems more of the the more mainline resistance factions but you know just on this topic real quick before we close of you know, I don't know if it's still around, but there was, I think it was like Jaysha Uma in, in Gaza that was sort of like the AQ group nominally, but doesn't seem like they've been participating in this current round, which is interesting. I mean, again, it could be strategic patience and, you know, tactical pause, just like we've, you know, mentioned. Or, uh, or they could be, and they're or just not saying it. A hundred percent. So yeah. like, and again, like that goes back to how Bin Laden instructed the affiliates during the Arab Spring to not engage. Because, it, you know, because he wanted, you know, the government and whoever is involved to just drain the resources themselves without having, you know, any loss on its affiliates or its resources or members. So also that could be that strategy as well. And, you know, or there's a different plan that's set for, you know, for them around a specific time or, you know. Sarah astutely ends her article at the War on the Rocks with, for Al-Qaeda, it is a marathon, not a sprint. So Al-Qaeda's adaptability, its strategic thinking, its willing willingness to work with others, unlike the Islamic State, and its patience is what leads me to assess Al-Qaeda to be a far more dangerous and a strategic enemy than the Islamic State. I know a lot of people will disagree with that, but uh, I, I will stand by that. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This was insanely helpful and insightful. Uh, we greatly appreciate your uh, perspective on this issue and we're happy to share it with our listeners we we look forward to work following your work and hopefully having you back on the podcast uh more often in the future uh, best of luck to you and and best of luck with your work and and again my sincerest thanks i know i could speak for caleb as well our sincerest thanks for uh for joining us today on generation jihad of course thank you so much caleb and bill for having me and i look forward to you know more podcasts together in the future and more cooperative um projects and work together to continue to echo this threat to you know so we're vigilant and we're not complacent 
Yes, they they need to hear your voice, Sarah. You know, Caleb and I and Tom, we've been beating this drum for years, and and you know, I think I think we get tuned out at some point. We get accused of being the broken record, but you're you're definitely a fresh voice on this with an a interesting perspective, and we greatly appreciate it. And thanks again for joining us. And thanks again, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon. Thank you.